do I truly wanna know what my client satisfaction rate is? Wanting to get a positive Google review for marketing is different than knowing if you have a satisfied client base. It seems like the classic battle, the, the productization versus customization, where these, these bigger cases, there's going to have a lot of bespoke custom elements that requires a greater skill set from your attorneys. And it's what's right for you. Build on your pyramid as you go along. And before you know it, you look down, and you're like six stories up. Welcome to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm your host, Chris Stryer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io, the no excuses, no BS legal marketing agency that works harder than the competition. Each week, you get insights and wisdom from some of the best in the industry. Hit that follow button so that you never miss an episode. All right, let's dive in. How can you build a successful law firm while staying true to your values? Jack Zenda provides a roadmap. As founder of Zenda Law Group, Jack has created a firm guided by purpose beyond profitability. With a clear sense of core values, he has transformed hiring, operations, case selection, and client service. The result? A gigantic firm spanning multiple states and over 20 offices. In this episode, Jack shares his strategic approach to expansion, breaking down how he evaluates new locations. We also hear how he leverages client satisfaction tracking to continuously improve. And he offers advice on thoughtfully developing niche expertise by examining market demand, passion, and talent. Jack provides a unique insights for creating a thriving values-driven law firm. He shares the exact steps behind his own success. Here's Jack Zenda, owner at Zenda Law Group. My uncle was an attorney. I had no idea what type of lawyer he was. I think he, he did real estate and transactional law. But in my head, I thought he was kind of like the people in Law and Order or, you know, something from To Kill a Mockingbird. So I think that's the first time I started visualizing, hey, maybe I want to be an attorney. And then as I got older, you know, I'm in undergrad. I was a political science major. My grandfather had a PhD in history and said, do not get a PhD in history. You won't make any money. Go be an attorney. And that's really when I started setting my eyes on um, becoming a lawyer. And I specifically wanted, I knew I wanted to litigate. And originally I wanted to be a prosecutor, but I came out of law school with a, a ton of student debt and just didn't see a way to make ends meet on a prosecutor's salary. And I stumbled into personal injury law, which sounded like even better than being a prosecutor. Yeah. And it, it's funny that you got that piece of advice about the, the history and the PhD. I actually have a history. <laughs> history degree. And I, I can vouch for that. Not a lot of money. So I had to go into marketing. So you saw you recognize, hey, I'm going to go into the PI space. And you didn't just go into the PI space. I mean, you have this amazing relationship with success. So countless awards, national recognition, your clients have left thousands of reviews, multiple offices. I want to talk about the success side. And what did it mean for you when you set out on your legal career? And how has that changed over time? Yeah, well, you know, and when I first decided to practice pro-trimonetary law, what really attracted me to it was it was one of the few areas where you felt like you were helping an individual person. You also could make money doing it and you didn't have to charge them anything to accomplish that. And that really attracted me. And when I started the firm, the first thing we put out was our core purpose, which is to help as many people as possible through the practice of the law regardless of um, wealth. And to me, that North Star is really important. And we've always focused in on that as we pursue law and as we practice. And kind of going back to when I started the firm, I think it was in 2008 was when I left a, a job as an associate at a, a firm in Round Rock, Texas. Let's dive into that. Some individuals, they talk about how to make a profit and enjoy what they do, but often purpose is missed. You mentioned your goal purpose is, is to help as many people as possible, regardless of wealth. Let's expound on that. How is that guiding you on a day to day 
for your firm? How do you get everyone rowing into the same direction in terms of that purpose? Well, I think it starts with number one, the type of people you recruit to your law firm. And I don't think a, a core purpose is necessarily a negative or a positive, like there's not good or bad core purposes, but I think it's important you have one. And if you structure it the right way, it's going to attract the type of people that have similar values to yourself. In our profession, I saw some law firms that I felt like got lost because they focused too much on money and not on helping clients. There was a there was an attorney in town that got in a lot of trouble for bribing judges, running cases, and it's like spending the rest of his life in, in prison. And I saw a few other attorneys that that seemed like they weren't doing it for the right reasons. And then I saw some other amazing people that felt like they were making a lot of money, but they were helping clients one at a time. And so that's where that idea came from. And it helps drive, okay, what type of people do we want to join the firm? Do they agree with our core purpose? If, you know, maybe they're at a firm where they're handling a thousand cases and they don't know their clients, that's probably someone that maybe wouldn't line up with our core values. Are they, and then when it comes to types of cases we're going to work on, does it feel like a case where we can make a difference in the person's life? Or is it a case where we're just trying to make a quick buck that helps determine you know, how we might approach if we're going to take a case or not? How many cases can each lawyer have to be effective in helping our clients? You know, At our firm, we have a ratio of about 35 cases per attorney, and that's intentional because we want to try to maximize value and get the most out of each case. That means we have to take cases of a certain size. We can't take a large volume because you you would need a you know hundred lawyers to do that. And that helps drive that decision. And everything down to how we run the operation side is kind of run through that prism. It might make us more money, but would it sacrifice us helping clients? One of the words that I just want to emphasize here that you keep repeating is clients and not customers. Clients has emotions and feelings and they're people and they're humans. They're an individual and customers just the widgets a thing. And so I, I really agree and, and, and love that aspect of what you're saying. And I'm going to dig into this, too, because I, I just want to highlight a few things. So we're talking thousands of reviews, like you've got hundreds on multiple locations not only just Google, on Facebook and on Yelp. And I was going to dig into client satisfaction and using the word client, not customer satisfaction. One of the phrases you say is, each client's always going to deal with a lawyer on the case and not be just a case manager. And you're going to get those attorney insights. How did that come about? How do you see that affecting this whole client satisfaction? That's a great question. You know, the first thing that I think you have to realize is, do I truly want to know what my client satisfaction rate is? And one thing we do is every case is the client is required to fill out a short survey before they finish the closing statement. It's part of our DocuSign where we actually get the true unvarnished opinion of the client. And our client satisfaction rate is about 96%. And that's clients that are t- that have to tell us before they finish the document. And obviously, like if they were absolutely refused, they wouldn't have to. But and so as an attorney, you have to decide, do I really want to know this information? Because wanting to get a positive Google review for marketing is different than knowing if you have a satisfied client base. The other thing is there's nothing wrong with having a practice where case managers deal with the clients. It's just not our approach. And a lot of case managers do an amazing job because we have a small docket size. We want the client to have an intimate relationship with the attorney. So the attorney can, one, evaluate the case, two, maintain strong client control so they listen to us. And and that's because of trust. And trust is built over the amount of time you interact with someone. 
and how closely you interact with someone. If I just send someone an email, trust is going to be pretty wide. If I've had, you know, six in-person meetings, trust is going to be pretty close. They're going to believe in me as a person. It's all tying together. And client satisfaction is not just for, you know, a gimmick. It's like that allows us to be successful. When we're in a mediation and it's a really difficult situation, the client has a tough call, they trust us because we've spent a year building that trust. If we don't have it, then the client's not going to trust us. They're not going to listen to us. And we're going to kind of not get the result that's best for them. A thousand percent agree. I want to get just a little tactical real quick on, on like this survey. Is it just a traditional NPS survey? Do you go a little bit deeper with like a type form survey with multiple questions? What types of questions are you getting to get that radical candor, to get that understanding? We, you know, no one loves hearing it, but it's the, it's the only way to learn, right? And improve. If you hear something negative, it's like, okay, we're all lines. Here's the truth. How can we improve? That's a great question. And I'm happy to share this template with your users if they want a, a copy of it. We have a weighted question that is worded in such a way that does not seem like you're degrading the attorney or the staff, because people might interpret that as, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about Paul because, you know, Paul's an, even though I don't like Paul and didn't do a good job, like Paul's a nice person. So the questions are weighted in a way that come across as objective. And it's a one to uh, five scale. And there's 10 different questions. They're real quick, multiple choice. And then at the end, there's a place for them to leave uh, text information. And then we ask them, is it okay if we use this on our website for review purposes? Now, obviously, if it's Google, you have to, they have to fill it out themselves. But it gives us something we can put on the website, a testimonial automatically in the process. If they're not happy with this, then we might dig deeper, say, hey, what could we have done better? And if they are happy with us, you know, it gives us some insights on how the attorney practices law. And it also gives us people to follow up with to get uh, positive Google reviews. We also have a, a process once a quarter, we send out a client survey via text message and email. That's just a real simple, would you recommend the firm to a friend or family member traditional survey? So we can kind of see just in real time, what's the pulse of that? That one's been difficult to get people to respond to. You know, frankly, we get about a 25% response rate, but we have about a 99% response rate at the end of case ones. Fantastic. So that text one's more like the traditional NPS and the survey's getting more information. Exactly. The other thing too, just digging into this, and maybe this is just common practice, but limiting the number of cases that you take, you say you turn down 90% of cases, right? And to be so selective, to really give your all on these, I always say, you know, the best way to get referrals is to give referrals. So are you using these for reciprocity? Like, hey, these cases aren't cases for you, but it's right for someone. Do you find that that's contributing from the business development standpoint? Yeah, for sure. We refer out a lot of cases to other law firms. And we didn't start at this, this level where we were so selective. I mean, I remember when I first opened my firm, I settled my first case for, I think, $20,000. And I was like calling every day, when's the check getting here? I got to make payroll. <laughs> um, but, you know, over time, we've slowly moved it up. And you want, you want to think about what type of practice do I want? There's pros and cons to this approach. I mean, the pro is, you know, you get to work on really interesting, larger cases. The con is, you know, every case is a little different and the level of attorney you have to have goes way up. If you have a lower value case, you can train somebody to, to handle most things. And then you can handle like the 1% edge cases. The more complicated, the bigger cases they get, 
every case kind of becomes an edge case and it becomes more difficult to train people to, you know, how do you find someone that can handle a case like this from the outside? So there's, there's pros and cons to each approach. I just believe in life. You want to be intentional and decide what is the type of practice that I want and how do I get there? And I've seen some great friends that do the opposite and make a ton of money and are super happy. And some that are even more selective. I know an attorney in Kentucky that handles three cases at a time and he makes a fortune, just works on giant auto product liability cases. And he's, he wanted to be the, the go-to auto product liability attorney and, and he's done that. Jack has built a nationally recognized practice through niche expertise and strategic growth. He breaks down his processes for smart expansion, explaining how he evaluates potential new locations Jack also shares his approach to capitalization. So I have a process to how we approach different markets. How it started was Texas has been a really anti-consumer state for a long time. And about 10 years ago, they started looking at some really scary legislation that would make it very, very difficult to be successful as a plaintiff's lawyer. And that was really a wake up call for me. And I said, man, I got to have some ways to hedge my bets and look at other states. And that's when we started the expansion look. Now, to break down your question into different parts, okay, how do I choose a market? I created a spreadsheet where I looked at the different things that an attorney that does personal injury law would care about on a legal side. Like, okay, do I get the full bill? What are the segregation laws? What are the minimum policy limits? You know, the different things, bad faith laws that you might consider. And then I gave each state a ranking one to five. Then I looked at how many attorneys were in the state for the population base. You can't really get a number on personal injury lawyers, but you can get a sense of attorneys per capita. And then I did some searching on Google AdWords to figure out, okay, how much do the cost per click words cost in that state to give me some sort of market you know, competitiveness? And then I looked at some data on TV advertising. Even though we don't advertise on TV, it gave me a sense of how competitive this space was. And then I put all that in a spreadsheet and then I put in a column for, do I want to go to this place? You know, would I enjoy traveling there regularly? And that's how we landed on our first state of Colorado, because it met a lot of those elements. And it's a place I want to go. It's a nice place. It's close. It's easy to get to. Now, on the capitalization side, you've got to know your numbers first. So you need to know what is my average time to resolve a case? How much do I resolve a case for? And how much does it cost to acquire a case? And so with that information, you can plug that in and figure out, okay, what's my startup capital needs, office space, marketing dollars, people on the ground. When am I going to get my first case and how long until I'm going to monetize it? We went really light on the overhead at first. Like we worked in virtual offices, had one attorney, had all our staff in Austin before we started adding a lot of people to different spots. I love the competitive intelligence that you did with the Google ads, the TV media buys, the market saturation number attorneys and those different elements of choosing the market. And, and just a few other things here. When you're talking about those basic numbers, right? If you were on Shark Tank, you would be, you'd be killing it, right? You have your numbers, <laughs> right? A lot of attorneys listening don't have those numbers. And I think it's, it, you know, a lot of firms, they have the, the bookkeeper and maybe the, the CPA, but they don't have, let's say, maybe they have the controller, but maybe not the director of finance or the CMO or those people. How do you approach getting those numbers? Because those numbers tell you what you can spend to acquire a client. So then when you're looking at, say, SEO or Google ads or social or TV, it's not, you know, your numbers, you know what it costs to, to acquire a lead. I think the first thing you have to decide is, am I committed to getting this information? I think most of the problems lawyers have in these situations is they're not really committed to doing the work necessary to make it happen, or they're not willing to pay somebody enough money to make it happen. I, 
I taught myself how Excel analytics and QuickBooks and financials work because I wanted to grow and it was necessary. If you're very successful, you could hire someone to do a lot for you, but it's going to be very expensive because like there's a lot of know-how that goes into that. The simplest, now once you've committed to say, okay, I want to figure out this information and I want to do it myself. The first thing you need to do is figure out what data to track and how you're going to track it. And you want to start with how do you get your business? Where does it come from? You can do this with an Excel spreadsheet, you can do this with a basic CRM, you could do it with a piece of paper, um, but it's basically like asking each client, where did you hear about us? And trying to get that as specific as possible. Then you want to lay across how much money you spent by different marketing vertical. And you want to include referrals. If you're a big referral business, you want to include the referral fee you're paying as a marketing expense on the back end. Because that is a cost that you're having to put in. If you're only getting $10,000 per case and you're having to pay 5000 in referral fees, that's a pretty high cost per client acquisition number. You're talking about 5000 for a $10,000 fee. And so you can put in a spreadsheet and then do a calculation. You could put it in a CRM. There's cheap ones like Zoho. Um, you could go more high end like Salesforce. We have a custom software program that we built that we use for our CRM. And we also use HubSpot to track some more marketing data. That's one of the more pricey ones. But in the beginning, I was very conservative with how much money I spent on software. So it was a lot of spreadsheets and manual calculation. That's fantastic. And I think a lot of people could learn from just this section here because it's just not talked about enough. You know, I know a lot of the the Florida legislation and everything has changed over there. And now they're looking at expansion in other states. And so there's a lot of individuals that, hey, this is this is a way to hedge kind of when when there's conversations are occurring. Sometimes a firm doesn't need to even open a new location to serve a new community. You know, as of 2022, there's around 42 and a half million individuals in the U.S. that speak Spanish as their native tongue. You know, that's 13 plus percent of the total population. You're very active in that community. How does Zenda Law Group tap into the Spanish speaking market? You know, it's it's really interesting. So my wife's from El Paso. Her family's originally from Honduras. And so she speaks Spanish fluently and so do my kids. Uh, and I'm pretty close. And, uh, you know, I never thought about it as like a different market. I always thought about like people that speak Spanish need lawyers and they're more comfortable talking to people that speak their own language. I think that's that's one you want to think about like, okay, when I'm talking about, you know, the Spanish speaking community, no, you're talking about like, a hundred different countries, a lot of different cultures, every culture is different and every community is different. El Paso, for example, which has been one of our more successful markets, it is most people speak English, but a lot of people prefer Spanish. So it's just a comfort. You know, you'll talk to a doctor who's, you know, went to Harvard, but they just prefer speaking Spanish. And so if your law firm can do that, that adds a lot of value to it. And the reason why it's effective as a marketing tool is because most law firms are intimidated by the language barrier aspect, so the competitiveness is much lower. And so you're looking for population densities that have a high speaking Spanish-speaking population. And then you just want to think, okay, what are the pain points that this community can have and how do I speak to them? And I found that 95% of them overlap with English-speaking communities. It's just in a different language. Um, and maybe you have slightly different visuals, but it's very similar to how you approach different markets. What's been really helpful for us is we have Spanish speaking lawyers, which to me makes a big difference in the client relationship. I find it's possible, but it's more challenging to uh, have a relationship with a client through a translator. People like people that are more similar to themselves. So that, so that matches up to that client satisfaction. And Jack, you have this deep expertise in, in trucking law. Talk about this specialization and why you kind of leaned into the trucking side. 
Yeah. And, and it's weird. It kind of picked me. When I was an associate at my first firm, they hired me to start their PI practice, which was kind of crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. My uh, boss didn't know what he was doing. He did family law. I was really fortunate to get a trucking wrongful death case in my first year, about 15 months into the practice. And I had to teach myself everything related to trucking. I remember reading like 15 CLEs. I learned about Texas Trawler Association, met some other folks in there. And I probably had no business handling the case. And I was so stressed out about it. Like I forced myself to learn everything about that case. And we got it resolved for policy limits, which was a million dollars. And the same thing happened again, like six months later. I didn't get another trucking death case for like another two years. I started my practice after that. That'd be just easy. You know, you mark a little bit, just trucking cases come in left and right. But I really enjoyed it. And I saw that there was so much damage being caused by trucking companies that was so much more than what a car causes. And you could tell that like the strategy behind a lot of them was putting inexperienced or untrained drivers on the road to save money and at the expense of the lives of other people. And the companies knew about it and didn't care because they weren't being held accountable. And that really got me excited to, to help people. And it, they're way more interesting than a regular car wreck case. And the fact the investigation piece, you know, trying to figure out the evidence, you have a more difficult opponent. So I've always enjoyed the gamesmanship piece. And we made that one of our, um, we call it swim lanes. Like we have these different areas that we're trying to improve on as a firm. And, you know, about 10 years ago, we said, hey, we want to be one of the best trucking firms in the country. And we put out sticky notes and we put in, what do we need to do to do that? Like, what are the things the milestones we have to accomplish. And we laid that out for three years and said, okay, we want to go to trucking seminars. We want to have trucking jury trials. We want to have more than one attorney that can do it. We have cases in multiple states. And then we just started checking it off. And over time, got more and more experience. And you just kind of build on your pyramid as you go along. And before you know it, you look down, and you're like six stories up. I imagine participating and being part of that community, that group, it kind of lends itself. And where you put attention, it kind of attracts to the firm. And that's that's excellent. Where can people go to get in touch with you and learn more? Well, one, I want to thank you, Chris, for having me on the show. And I appreciate all your kind words and questions. And I, what success I do have, it's, you know, on the backs of giants, especially in the trucking space. You know, people like Joe Freed, Mike Leeserman, uh, all sorts of people that have done amazing things that I've learned from. Where people can find me, they can email me at real simple, jack at zendalaw.com or go to zendalaw.com or anybody can, you know, give me a call. Uh, anytime through the number on the website and happy to talk to anybody either about business or cases. I love talking about this stuff and I have a blast doing it and happy to help out how I can. Thanks so much to Jack for sharing his wisdom today. Let's hit the takeaways. Time for the pinpoints. Know where you want to go. There are pros and cons to high volume and bespoke service firms. Consider the level of involvement you desire in each case. Do you want an efficient system with streamlined processes or white glove service with deeply tailored attention? Once your preferred direction is clear, build systems and structures to support it. Productized firms need refined protocols and automation to deliver results at scale. Custom models rely on talent and time to craft customized care. Defining your philosophy sets the stage to intentionally design the firm view and vision. With a clear destination, you can map out the optimal path to get there. Consider the level of involvement you want on every case. If you have a lower value case, you can train somebody to, to handle most things and then you can handle like the 1% edge cases. The more complicated, the bigger cases they get, every case kind of becomes an edge case and it becomes more difficult to train people to, you know, how do you find someone that can handle a case like this from the outside? There's pros and cons to each approach. I just believe in life, you wanna be intentional and decide what is the type of practice that I want and how do I get there? Principles provide a roadmap to success. A clearly defined core purpose can guide decision-making at every level, 
from operations to client service models, fee structures, and hiring. When values shape your choices, they act as a true north, orienting your firm and keeping it on track even amidst complex decisions. Rather than getting lost in day-to-day details, let your principles light the path forward. With purpose at the helm, success naturally flows. There's not good or bad core purposes, but I think it's important you have one. If you structure it the right way, it's going to attract the type of people that have similar values to yourself. Simple surveys can drive improvement. If you truly want to understand the client's satisfaction, consider adding a survey before the closing statement. Implementing this simple feedback channel shows radical candor in action, the willingness to care personally combined with the courage to change and challenge directly. Adopting this mindset can help transform client relationships and your entire firm. We have a weighted question that is worded in such a way that does not seem like you're de- degrading the attorney or the staff. And it's a one, two, uh, five scale. And there's 10 different questions and they're real quick, multiple choice. For more information about Jack, check out the show notes. While you're there, please hit that follow button so you never miss an episode of Personal Injury Mastermind with me, Chris Stryer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. All right, everybody, thanks for hanging out. See you next time. I'm out.